Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. Maybe I could say something a little bit more about it. Are we going to do that now? Yeah. Uh, we're going to go around and say names of this thing. Okay. Yeah. One short response since we have yeah. a lot of people here. One thing I want to say is that I actually think it's really great for a group like this to take a little time to actually speak. My own experience was that I came to uh, Buddhist groups like this where there was somebody giving a, a Dharma talk and kind of come together in silence and kind of hear a talk and then leave. And I think it's really important to build sangha, to build community. And I, I know that you guys do that, and I think that this check-in is a part of doing that. Um, I'm going to talk today about the five spiritual faculties that the Buddha explained as the path to awakening. And the first one is faith. And I just want to say that faith is uh, often, for a lot of us, kind of a touchy subject. Uh, and kind of connotates, you know, blind belief or something like that. And, you know, really saying that when we're talking about this and doing this check-in, it's just like, what was the thing that inspired us, that gave us some hope or belief or, or feeling that meditation would be good, useful, helpful, that would alleviate some of our confusion, our suffering, whatever brought us to the practice? So if you just reflect for a moment as we say our names and, you know, say... What was that thing? Maybe it was a person, you know, maybe you know, you saw the Dalai Lama and you said, oh, this meditation stuff, maybe I should do it. Or maybe somebody, a friend, uh, a spontaneous experience, a lot of people, you know, acid trip or something. And, uh, you know, they said, oh, well, there's another realm here. I better explore it in meditation. So whatever that was for you. So just our names and a one-liner, kind of like a friend I, you know, had faith in or a teacher or a personal experience. You want to give us your one line first? Sure. So I'm Noah. <laughs> and it was it was my father. I was suffering and he said, try meditation and I had faith in him. That it, you know, an inkling <laughs> that it would help. And I tried it. And it worked. I'm Bob and it was also my father who was a beatnik and had um, friends who practice then and who also had books around the house by the beats. My name's Chris, and um, I took the first entry level of um, Buddhist lesson last September in Buddha Gate a Monastery in Lafayette, and I found it very helpful. And I took that for 10 weeks of Saturday lessons. So. What's your name? We'll go around. I'm Rob, and uh, 
couple of friends who have meditated and found it beneficial. Uh, my name is Neil, and I just try to uh, uh, get the uh, uh, environment so I can meditate as a group, so I can get into the deep state of the mind. My name is Mike, and uh, of all things, I read an article by Alan Watts in the Playboy. <laughs> uh, called Wealth Versus Money, which led, which led me to read uh, Psychotherapy East and West, and, uh, and lots of other things. And uh, I think, by, by the way, it was Alan Watts who cleared up the idea of belief and faith. Belief is belief in, in something, but he said faith is letting go. So. Yeah, I'm George. Uh, it was Watts for me, too. Um, and more than anything, it was a uh, it was a feeling of familiarity of what he was saying and stuff that, that I realized I already knew. He was bringing it My name is Baruch, and uh, it's just the silence. My name is Lee, and it was your father. And his work, especially around death and dying, when my mother was dying, Beneficial effects of meditation on insomnia problems. Uh, my name is Frank, and a friend of my church actually got me started. He was teaching a class in Transcendent Movies, and found that it was really helpful in different kinds of spirituality. Um, my name is Shepard, and it was during the Vietnam War when I saw Buddhist monks lost themselves in. My name is Kay, and I first began this year, and then that's what led me to interest in My name is Carl, and I started for me back in college and learned transcendental meditation with the moderation. Yogi, and that was sort of the seed, and then many, many years later, you know, I mean, I would meditate off and on, but then uh, just got more into it, picked up a, a book by Jack Cornfield, went to a uh, four-day uh, session with your, with your dad, too, um, and uh, just got more into it. Uh, I hit bottom, and my sister rescued me and brought me to Mount Madonna. My name is Roger, and I read the um, book called Buddhism by Christopher Sanford in the Penguin series, which is a most misleading book. <laughs> so, um, but I did find that it made me. It seemed to remind me of something, the previous life, which I think may actually have been Taoism. So I, uh, I was wrong the last time uh, when I was a Chinese Taoist, maybe, and I, so as a, as a consequence, I was reborn in England. <laughs> and, uh, and then I have been trying to get it right ever since. <laughs> My name's Eric. I don't really know specifically what sparked my interest in Buddhism in general, but I, the main thing that draws me to it is the practicality and the simple logic and the simple wisdom. Mm -hmm. My name is Bill, and uh, Walt Anderson brought me 
here, I worked with him and saw his direct, honest approach to a lot of things, and I thought I would check it out. Hi, my name is Barbara, and I actually had a, a case manager introduce me to Buddhism alongside um, recovery work that I was doing, and, and it really opened up some, some new ways of thinking for me, and it, it, it helped me a lot. That's the case to people in front. My name's John, and um, I actually sort of avoided Buddhism <laughs> for many years. And um, I, I studied and practiced Hinduism for a long time. And um, a lot of bhakti yoga, um, which is very attractive to me. But then very recently, I was introduced to Pema Chodron, and I've been eating up her books like crazy. Um, about a week ago, someone gave me a beautiful green Tara, and now I find myself here. So, <laughs> my name is Sari, and um, you know I was fortunate enough to not ever grow up with a, a preconceived notion of God, and so I always felt that I had my own natural kind of intuitive sense of it. And, and then, as little drifts of Buddhism came toward me, I was it resonated with me, and. Um, but it wasn't until I got into recovery and um, actually uh, did a couple-year-long workshop with um, uh, using the works of Marsha Lanahan, who um, bases a lot of her work on mindfulness and and a lot of the Buddhist principles that uh, I began to get more involved in what Buddhism is actually about. My name is Ed, and um, first started on the path of meditation in 1980 um, through Swami Muktananda and the very powerful experiences I had with him. And I've um, sort of reached the path I am now just by um, listening to my dreams. I'm Steve, and a few years ago I turned 50 and got sober and left the church. (laughs) So that created a lot of vacancies. My name is Bob. Uh, I don't know if I have an answer to the question. It's a long, long time wondering what is it really all about. As I've gotten older, it seems to have increasing meaning. And perhaps a couple of early books by Suzuki and Watts were the interest. I'm Snake, and I guess. Uh, search for a spirituality that would make me feel okay with my sexuality was quite a few of my search. Heart, I was uh, born with faith, thus it existed before my birth, thus it's part of you. My name's Paul, and um, I went uh, shopping for religions after I had practicing Catholicism and uh, actually a um, uh, said well was the Ernie Isaacs said why don't you go in meditation I was David and I'm another beginner with the Alan Monts some years ago <laughs> and I just 
Um, my name is Clint, and I would say as many years ago, I asked for the Golden Gate Park. <laughs> and, uh, and after that, um, it was just looking for a non homophobic spiritual path. <laughs> Jim, I'm a yoga teacher and uh, I slowly discovered yoga was preparation for meditation. Uh, through, through it, it, it just startled me one day in doing lots of yoga that um, yoga was a practice of dedication. And dedicated to what sort of just appeared to me in this space, eventually. Let me introduce Noah Levine. He has a, a Wednesday night group. I think several people here have been to it at the Cultural Integration Fellowship, Paul and Fulton. And um, he's a teacher in training with Jack Kornfeld at Spirit Rock Meditation Center and also teaches meditation in juvenile halls in the St. Quentin. He's the author of Dharma Punks a personal memoir that recounts his life's transition from street punk drug addict to recovering addict and Buddhist practitioner. And he's working on a second book. Thank you. <coughs> and it's nice to be back and get to spend some time with you this morning. Um, will you give me kind of a five-minute warning or so? What time do we go to? Twelve. Twelve. What time is it now? Eleven twenty. Okay, so we have some time. And um, so, good morning. I think it's just a really interesting question, and the reason you know we talked about this is because I am going to speak about um, you know what the Buddha said were these five spiritual faculties or spiritual powers um, that he reflected on, and he said, you know, how did I come to this awakening? And this comes in the suttas and the scriptures. Uh, before actually he taught the Four Noble Truths, after his experience of enlightenment underneath the tree, and then he hung out for several days before going out and finding his friends and beginning to teach the Dharma, what's called you know putting the wheel of the Buddha Dharma in motion. And so this actually comes out of a place of when later he recounted his experience. He said, this is, you know, for me, I saw that first like, thing for me, the first thing, to get me onto the spiritual path was faith. And, you know, and saying that I believe, you know, that it feels like, you know, we have to have faith in something in order to do it. You know, if we don't have some sort of belief that it's going to work, then we won't do it. Uh, and so it's, I think it's just a really interesting question for each of us to reflect on where did that come from? You know, was it that I had, you know, trusted someone else? It seemed like they were happier than me or had found something that was working for them. And so I said, well, kind of like, I want what that person has, you know, whether that was an inspirational teacher. Was that a spontaneous experience? Like many people say, you know, it was just sort of this inner sense, feeling, tone that I just sort of uh, knew that going inward, introspection would be useful. Now, where does that faith come from? 
know, in this Buddhist tradition where the Buddha says over and over and over, don't take my word for it. Don't believe me or my teachings. Find out for yourself if it's true. Points to the, you know, truth that it's not about having faith in, certainly not in a statue or in a tradition or religious dogma. Really, he's pointing towards faith in our own direct experience, this verified faith. But often, in order to go inside, in order to kind of find out for ourselves, someone else, you know, out there inspires us. Often. You know, it's a, an inspirational teacher. Certainly, you know, in the time of the Buddha, he was walking around and people were just kind of like seeing his radiance and, you know, the spiritual power and kind of were just like, oh, wow, I want that. I want to get free from suffering. That sounds great. And so each of us has had that experience in our own way. Um, and it's different for each of us. But it's been really useful for me to see, like, uh, you know, because I, I feel like I came to Buddhist practice with no faith, you know, and total irreverence and doubt and, uh, you know, it was just like, no way. I grew up with it, you know, as many of you know. Uh, you know, I, my father was a Buddhist teacher and... Uh, you know, spiritual practice around me my whole life, and I was just like, that shit doesn't make sense. You know, how is sitting there not doing anything going to be helpful to anyone? Just didn't get it at all. And then for me, it was this place of deep suffering and confusion and ignorance um, that brought me to a place of, you know, incarceration and addiction. And from that place of, like, my way doesn't work, and you know, the love and respect of my father and him saying, this way does work. It might not make sense to you, but it'll help you get free from the confusion and suffering of your own mind and, and heart and body. And having some faith in him and saying, like, oh, okay, I, I believe that on some level. I've got a lot of doubt, but there's something in here where I'll try it. Because I've tried everything else. Nothing else seemed to work very well. So I'll try this meditation practice. So that first step. For the Buddha, it was, um, you know, that he, he grew up uh, secluded in kind of pleasure gardens. And, you know, his parents were kind of trying to seclude him from the suffering of the world. And for him, that first faith was when what's called the heavenly messengers, when he escaped from his secluded palace and saw a sick person, an old person, and a dying person. You know, and he saw like, oh, this is the truth of existence. We're all going to get sick, old, and die. We're all going to suffer. And then the thing that, and he said, I don't want to do that, you know. And this is also within this Hindu cosmology that says, we don't do it one time. We do it over and over and over and over. And he says, I don't want to keep this cycle of birth and death. I don't want to keep suffering, you know, incarnation after incarnation. And the thing that gave him faith was that he saw a spiritual wanderer. The fourth messenger, you know, that's talked about where he saw this person in robes with a begging bowl living this simple life and was told that's somebody who's trying to free themselves from this cycle. He's trying to get liberated and not continue this sickness, old age, suffering, death cycle. And so for him it was that, oh, there's this other path. You don't have to just, you know, 
work in the material world and accept you know, material pleasure and, and suffering as, as your life's experience. You can actually focus your life's energy on a spiritual path. And it was that wanderer who he never even spoke to. He just saw walking by. And he said, I'm going to do that. That looks, you know, that looks like a good option. The spiritual wandering business. And then just left his home and went out to see to, and sought teachers. But it was that first experience of faith that whatever that person has, I want to do that. And my own experience of having faith, um, you know, there's this place, and I'm so glad, it's one of the things that connects me so deeply to Buddhism, of this question everything, question your teachers, don't take anybody's word for anything, find out for yourself. It's one of the things for me, being kind of an anti-authority type of person, that really endears me to the practice. But in my early practice, and I assume that other people here have had this experience, some level of this experience, where um, I had so much uh, vigor, so much, I was so kind of like, this is great, I found something that works. And I was a little blind in my faith, you know, that I was just kind of like, oh, that person's spiritual, what can I learn from that person? You know, and especially in these modern times, there's been uh, so many spiritual teachers who've been very confused and who've ended up hurting their students quite a bit. And so I'm just pointing to the importance of a discerning faith and not a blind faith. Because I certainly went into one teacher-student relationship and put all of my faith into this man. And just really kind of like, he, he had it and I wanted it. And it really ended up breaking my heart when I found out actually how confused he was and that he actually you know, had some wonderful wisdom and also had a lot of um, confusion too. And that confusion then spilt out onto our small community and, you know, tore it apart as spiritual communities uh, tend to happen. You know, certainly has happened quite a bit in the kind of last 40 or 50 years here in the West. Almost every spiritual scene, there's kind of like, oh yeah, that teacher was sleeping with the students. Oh yeah, that teacher was taking money that they shouldn't have been. Oh, that teacher was an alcoholic and that teacher was, you know, this and that. You know, so it's not so much from what I'm pointing to is faith in someone else. But sometimes it is that someone else that gives us faith in ourselves. And certainly my experience with that beginning faith and that blind faith and that heartbreak from betrayal within a spiritual community um, actually was what forced me to trust myself deeper. To trust the Buddha's wisdom of don't, you know, have a guru and take a teaching on that level. You have to find out the truth for yourself. You have to go inward and find it within your own heart. That nobody can give it to you. So ultimately this first step on the path is coming to that place of faith and our own deepest wisdom. Our own ability, our Buddha nature. Our own ability to wake up. So the second piece uh, in this list of spiritual faculties is that from that level of faith or belief or inspiration of spiritual you know, attainment being possible comes effort. That in actually in order to apply effort to our spiritual practice, we have to have some faith that it's going to work. And then, you know, so from that place of like, okay, this will work. 
gets verified. We sit down, we feel the breath coming and going, and saying, well, at the very least, at least I'm not thinking. You know, at least I have a moment relief from my crazy mind, you know, and we have that verified experience. Or maybe we have a larger spiritual opening and a you know, moment of seclusion from the hindrances and, you know, of deep uh, bliss or something like that. Sometimes we have those spontaneous experiences and then we say like, well, okay, I'm going to, this is worthy of effort. This is worthy of my life's energy. And we see, like, we start meditating, we see like, this isn't easy. This isn't just sitting here. This takes a lot of effort to train the mind to come back to the present over and over and over. And all the memories and fantasies and fears and, you know, desires that our minds play. Wow, this takes a lot of work to come back. But I have faith that it's worth it. From my own experience, it's starting to alleviate some of my confusion. I'm suffering a little less. So I'm going to continue putting effort in this direction. And this was the Buddha's experience when he went and found these gurus and these teachers. And he got really concentrated doing these yogic, you know, breathing and mantra. And he got so concentrated and, you know, a lot of effort. And it worked to a certain level. And then he saw that actually when this concentration wears off, um, there's still confusion here. Which was what drew him to the actual mindfulness, the present time non-discriminating awareness practices. So this effort on the spiritual path, especially from a Buddhist perspective, is much more than the training of our minds and hearts in, in present time awareness. It's the effort and uh, energy that it takes to, um, on some levels, the effort to uh, renounce or let go of the things that we know are causing us suffering in our lives, not only on the meditation cushion, but in all aspects of our lives, uh, and or to cultivate you know, the things that are bringing joy and compassion and love into our lives. So the spiritual effort, you know, hopefully, we all know that we're not meditating to become good meditators, but that meditation is part of the formal aspect of our lives to allow us to live a more harmonious and skillful life. And so when we're talking about effort, it goes into all realms of our livelihood, uh, of all of our actions of body and speech and mind. You know, the effort to bring about wholesome results, results that lead to less suffering, more happiness, um, and alleviate the confusion and dissatisfaction that we experience. The Buddha explained this effort as being against the stream, saying that you know because of the natural tendencies, the natural human tendencies towards attachment and aversion, through our, our almost physical, um, instinctual level of if it's pleasant, we want more. If it's unpleasant, we want to get rid of it. Totally natural aspect of having a body and mind. And the Buddha says, you know, actually the effort is to go against those instincts that push away and are aversive and hate anything unpleasant and are greedy and grasping and lustful after everything that is pleasant. You know, this is the Buddha's path, you know, where it's like, actually it's about accepting, ah, sometimes pleasant, sometimes unpleasant. 
if I meet the unpleasant with aversion, I create an unnecessary suffering for myself. If I grasp and try to attach to an impermanent or passing pleasant experience, you know, I like this image of like when we try to hold on to something that's being pulled from our grasp, it's like rope burn, you know, because it's everything, it's passing so quickly. When we try to hold on to it, it hurts. It's being pulled from our grasp. So this effort that goes against these natural instincts, and it's one of the reasons why the Buddha was hesitant to teach. So people aren't going to want to do this, sitting still and paying attention, letting go of pleasure, accepting pain as their spiritual path. People want bliss. People want to promise that I have this spiritual teaching that will make you blissful and full of pleasure forever. And the Buddha said, that's just not my experience. My experience is one of peace. And that peace includes pain and includes joy. You know, the Chinese Buddhists say, 10,000 joys, sorrows, 10,000 joys. You know, and that this path isn't one of like you're going to get blissed out forever. It's one of like coming to equanimity, to acceptance, and to caring, to compassion about our pain and the pain in the world. I get a little confused sometimes about this effort piece, about how come some of us uh, have the ability to kind of long-term put in a lot of effort into our spiritual practices. Some of us don't. Where does that come from? Obviously, some of it comes from this first piece of faith. Um, From a larger Buddhist perspective, it must come from karma, from our own past actions. But since I don't really understand or see my own past karma, it's sometimes hard to understand how come, like even in a scene like this or in my recovering community or my spiritual communities, there's such a transient population. You know, it doesn't seem like people come and stay with practice long term. Like you're going to hit a wall and then say, oh, that's enough effort. You know, this stuff is really difficult. I have to actually face all of my unexplored grief, all of my unexplored Greed, lust, fear. And people kind of give up often. And so I don't really know where that comes from, that willingness to continue, to continuously putting effort, even when it's not pleasant all the time. Even when we sit down and we're faced with all of our shit. And it's not so fun. Sometimes, you know, it's very pleasant and you get peaceful. Sometimes it's not. Certainly in the long-term description of levels of spiritual awakening, the Buddha was really clear that it gets very difficult and it gets uh, horrifying, you know, when we begin to see the nature of life and death and how many lifetimes, you know, we've been doing this and, uh, you know, just that everything that we love is passing constantly. So this piece about effort, one of the ways that I think about it is um, not a very Buddhist way is grace. You know, sometimes it feels like we have the grace to continue practicing, to put that effort in and to get our asses on the cushions and, you know, onto retreats and, you know, whatever our spiritual practice is, being of service in the world or, you know, being engaged in good things, uh, being able to be honest with ourselves and others. So we have to practice generosity, forgiveness, compassion. 
that there's this way in which it just feels so mysterious to me that I just kind of give it up to this mysterious concept of grace. Something keeps me going. Something keeps that fire burning within me that says, yeah, this is worthy. I'm going to continue my practice, even though it's difficult a lot of the time. You know? And the layers of the onion keep getting pulled back, you know? And it keeps, you know, kind of like, oh, okay, I'm in a good place. And then another level of healing comes to the surface. So this faith that gives us the effort to continue our practice. And then the second, the next three are about the meditation practice, about being mindful, the mindfulness leading to concentration, and the concentrated mind uh, being able to penetrate into wisdom and understanding. So this ability, you know, mindfulness being the thing that separates the Buddha's teaching from many of the Hindu practices of his time. You know, the piece that says, pay attention to everything. See it as it is, as it arises and passes. Begin with the mindfulness of breath and body, observing this physical form as impermanent, that our bodies are going to die, that everything that we see, that we come in contact with, is here now and is changing, is in constant flux. This first foundation of Buddhist mindfulness practice is often only taught uh, and certainly my tradition, the Vipassana Theravadan tradition, is often guilty of this too, of teaching mindfulness of just mindfulness of the breath or mindfulness of the body sensations. But within this sutta, where the Buddha outlines this mindfulness practice, uh, there's a whole list of mindful body contemplations. And a lot of it is about our own impermanence, about our own mortality, and that this body isn't a, a refuge for us to keep. You know, that this body is temporary and it's actually suggested that we meditate on death on a you know, daily basis of just acknowledging like, okay, this body is here and this body will die. And actually, you know, he suggests going to the graveyards and seeing like, oh, just as this body has died, so, so will mine. To break some of our identification or misidentification with this physical form as being who we are beginning to come into contact with seeing that there's something else going on here other than this mind-body process. That there's another <coughs> dimension, spiritual dimension. Applying that mindfulness not only to the contemplation of the physical form, but also to the feelings and emotions that arise in our consciousness of being mindful of, um, especially this feeling tone of like, what happens when I'm having a pleasant experience? And applying that mindfulness to seeing directly, oh, when there's a pleasurable experience, there's a little bit of this attachment to it. I want more of that. You know, or a little bit of kind of this craving feeling. Oh, that's pleasant. I'll have another scoop, please. You know? And paying attention to that and then releasing that, beginning to let go of first acknowledging the attachment and the aversion through the mindfulness and then beginning to relax into letting things pass, arise and pass in their own natural way. And beginning to also take that perspective on our minds, seeing that our consciousness is so identified with our thoughts and we think that we are, we think, you know, 
therefore we are, whatever that guy said. (laughs) But beginning to bring the mindfulness, this awareness in a more spacious way to see, thoughts are arising and passing. I can choose to direct my energy and attention to those thoughts, or I can actually experience them as impermanent. And I can see that when I grasp, when I, you know, obsess, the difficulty I cause for myself. Beginning to see even the mind, turning the attention on the mind. You know, when we begin to apply this effort to mindfulness practice, we experience these hindrances. When we begin to really say, okay, paying present time awareness attention is important to my life, to my spiritual practice. Then we begin to see like, oh, I feel very agitated when I meditate. I get very tired or sleepy. It's hard for me to pay attention. Um, You know, there's all of this, you know, strong desire for pleasant experience. Uh, There's all of this aversion or resistance to unpleasant experience. And or ultimately we start to believe our doubt. You know, this huge hindrance of, you know, our mind offers this doubt and we believe it. Saying like, well, I'm different. Uh, I, I can't do this. Or doubting the path itself. Oh, no, this path isn't for me. There is a bit of, you know, weird sexism philosophy here. I better, you know, better throw out the meditation and everything else. And we start to believe our doubts rather than our own deep experience that says, actually, when I do this, it works. I've seen through my own direct, verified experience that this works. We each have to see that for ourselves. I assume that most of us have. So in that mindfulness, dealing with these hindrances that arise, whether it's sleepiness or restlessness, whether it's doubt or aversion, that that's all part of this mindfulness practice. It's been really helpful to me to you know look and, and study the Buddhist teachings and see, and this actually isn't that popular of a Buddhist opinion, but it's my opinion. I might have even said it here last time because I've been speaking about it a lot. That these hindrances, these things, these difficulties that arise, whether it's lust or it's aversion or it's fear or it's anger or whatever, that there's a way in which sometimes we get this spiritual superego and we think there's something wrong with me if my mind is going into those places. I'm not being spiritual enough. But in the suttas, in the Buddha's life, you know, this is called Mara. This is the tempter, the evil, king of death, Mara coming at the Buddha, you know, and saying, like, here, there's all of these beautiful people for you to have sex with, you know, temptation. You know, and the Buddha's saying, oh, that's just temptation, that's just physical craving, desire. And every time saying, I see you, Mara, I see you as the illusion that says, that will make me happy. Because I know that physical sensation won't make me happy. It'll be temporary pleasure. It won't be long-term liberation. Or the armies of Mara and the violence, you know, saying, like, I'm going to attack you, I'm going to kill you. And the Buddha, you know, just saying, like, oh, I see you. Anger, aversion, hatred, I I see that tendency, that self-protective tendency within my mind. And every time the Buddha just saying, I see you. And after enlightenment, these Maras, these hindrances, continuing to visit the Buddha, Now, many Buddhists would want to say, you know, the Buddha has, the enlightened Buddhist mind has no taints, has no hindrances, has no greed or hatred or delusion. The way that I understand, my cotton mouth, 
the way that I understand, uh, you know, or see these suttas and these visitings of Mara after the Buddha's enlightenment, is that if you have a human mind, enlightened or unenlightened, greed is going to arise. The enlightened mind sees it, is unaffected, is not attached, is not averse. If you have a human mind, <coughs> hatred, you know, aversion, those things are natural. They're going to arise in your mind. The difference is, when you're mindful, when you're aware, when you're attentive, you see it arising and don't believe it. My father talks about this, of like, big surprise. Oh, I'm angry again, big surprise. You know, why did I think that I was going to never get angry again? You know, I'm sad, I'm grieving, my friend died. There's a lot of sadness here. Big surprise, why did I think that there's something wrong with that? Why do I think there's something wrong with me for having this natural human experience? You know, or I see you, okay, grief again, welcome. I understand this to be the natural process. But there's something else within us, the superego maybe, if that's the right word, I don't know, that says, oh, there's something wrong with me. I'm confused because this is happening. And I thought now I'm on this spiritual path, this wouldn't happen anymore. Where's the never-ending bliss? You know, why is there still this sadness and grief? Thank you. So this mindfulness practice that the Buddha says, you know, bringing present time awareness liberates. Liberates our misidentification to the body, the feelings, the attachment, the aversion. And then through focusing on something like the breath or body, through doing uh, what you know would be Vipassana practice, which is present time awareness of whatever is the predominant experience, the mind gets really concentrated. And as the mind gets concentrated, you know, and focused, and we bring the attention in more and more, we begin to see really clearly the three aspects, the three truths. You know, and I've already been pointing towards them quite a bit. But the concentrated mind has direct experience, <laughs> direct insight into the nature of impermanence, the uncertainty of all things, the constant change. And of course, we all know this. It's such common sense. Like so many people said, we like Buddhism because it's common sense. But there's a big difference between understanding constant change or impermanence and directly seeing it and experiencing it and living our lives from that place. You know, Really having insight into arising and passing and impermanence means that we're not going to hold on anymore because we know it's just it's passing. It's going to be a let go, a letting be, a, you know, a letting things arise and pass. So the concentrated mind begins to see how oh, everything is arising and passing. Anicca, everything is arising and passing. Everything is uncertain. There's nothing certain, nothing solid, nothing s- separate and you know steady. It's all in flux. Everything. And because of that truth of impermanence, it's all passing, you know, then we see like, oh, and there's this suffering because of my resistance and lack of understanding of impermanence. Because I don't want things to change, you know? I want things to stay, when they're good, I want them to stay like that, you know? And, you know, I don't want to get old and die, and I don't want my friends to die. 
without even getting old? You know, I don't, you know, that lack of acceptance of the way things are and the change creates a lot of suffering for us. And so this truth of dukkha, you know, the unsatisfactory nature of phenomena. Sometimes in Buddhism gets the bad rap of saying life is suffering. Not life is suffering. There is suffering in life. There is. And ultimately, you know, the kind of ultimate aim of the concentrated mind is turning that consciousness back on itself, turning the awareness back on itself with this ultimate question of like, well, who's suffering here? Who is it? Am I these thoughts? Am I this body? Am I even this consciousness? This witness? This place that feels like I'm the one experiencing all of this. I've been the one, you know, living this life in this body. Okay, maybe I understand I'm not this body. Maybe I understand I'm not this mind, but I'm at least the one witnessing it. You know? <coughs> so this is the place in the Buddha's Dharma where he says, you know, find out for yourself, is that true? Who are you? Who are we? What is the nature of our self, of our consciousness? You know? And that the concept the mindfulness practice that will allow the mind to get concentrated, to give us a little bit of seclusion or protection from that doubt, from that restlessness, from that sleepiness, then the concentrated mind will be able to really see that minute detail directly out of our own experience of the impermanent nature of phenomena, the suffering, if there's any attachment or aversion, any grasping. And then, you know, who's experiencing it? And you get to these subtler and subtler levels of seeing like, oh, it's just experiences experiencing themselves. There's no me experiencing any of this. It's mind knowing the mind. It's seeing, you know, knowing, seeing, tasting, smelling, feeling. Sensations. Phenomena. It's not me. It's just experiencing itself. Easy place to get confused, the place that I get confused a lot in Buddhism. Because I've only had like really brief glimpses of this anatta. You know, and so there's the philosophy of it and there's the direct experience of it. Philosophy, forget it. But for me, I have the faith that the practice will take me to that place. And I know that those glimpses are liberating. You know, those are places of, of freedom. And so it's like kind of having that intention to bring our lives in that direction uh, in more congruence, concord with, concord with the way that things are, not necessarily the way we want them to be. Five minutes. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and so these are the faculties, you know, that this concentrated, this one-pointedness leads to, you know, just what I've been saying, this wisdom. You know, and mostly this wisdom is into the three characteristics, impermanence, suffering, and the nature of self. But more than that, you know, because of the great suffering, there's the flip side, which is the compassion, which is when we begin to see, you know, how much confusion we've been and how we've created a lot of this for ourselves, then the natural response is to care about that confusion and to care about not and seeing that it's universal 
and to begin responding with love and kindness and understanding to ourselves and to everyone else that we come in contact with to the best of our ability. Wisdom alone can be very dry. You know, in, in Buddhism often it's talked about like there's one wing of wisdom, which is understanding, and there's another wing of compassion, which is love and caring. And having to bring this gentle understanding, friendliness, I think is the best way to talk about it, to all of our spiritual practice. To be friendly towards ourselves and this confused mind and this identified heart in this you know, healing process, to be gentle and friendly with ourselves along the way and to learn to be gentle and friendly with each other and understanding that even the people that cause us pain are just confused people in pain themselves that cannot get free from it and it spills out on us. You know, beginning to come from that place. I offer all of this again in my own, uh, you know, just as an offering for you to reflect upon. Don't don't believe anything that I say. You know, find out for yourself. Reflect on it. Uh, trust your own deepest wisdom. You know, your own presence of mindfulness practice. Um, you know, we have to play with these teachings and find out what works and what doesn't work for us. So, thank you. And so if, if there is some time, if there's questions, if there's comments, please. Clint. You mentioned superego, and it's interesting because I, I haven't heard the concept used in Buddhism, but of course it's used in most psychology, but I find it be a major issue, yeah. not only for me, but for people I know. Mm-hmm. How does, can you go a little bit more about how does Buddhism deal with the assaults of, of superego mm-hmm. and all these, like, what we should be doing versus what we are doing? Right. So, I mean, from a Buddhist prayer, it's the judging mind. It's the critical mind. It's just an aspect of the deluded mind. You know, we have this sort of term. It's, you know, the place that's up here telling us, you know, in our mind or whatever, that's telling us what's good and bad and, you know, what we should be doing. The judging, the comparing, the criticizing. Um, so what was the question? What does Buddhism tell us about working with that aspect of mind? Yeah, uh- Personally, right. I, I struggle with it a lot, right. and I know I'm not the only one that, uh, and I just <clears throat> like to hear you. So, I mean, my, the way that, I mean, I suffer from it a lot, too. One of my experiences is that the more mindfulness of it, the more space, the less I believe it. You know, it's Mara. And so, you know, in the beginning, I believed all, you know, all of it before I started practicing. Gradually over-practicing periods of years of practicing, my identification with it has loosened some. So now where it's kind of like, oh, I'm judging again. Certainly this technique of of labeling it, of knowing, oh, this is a judgment. This is a comparison. This is, you know, and investigating it on that level and noting it and naming it. And then for me, it's this attitude of like big surprise. I'm judging myself again. You know, that's what my mind does. Do I have to believe it? taking it to a level from that mindfulness in the mind, also to the body. Like, how does this feel in my body? My stomach is tight, you know, when I'm judging myself, when I'm comparing, when I'm shooting all over myself. (laughs) You know? How does this feel physically? What happens if I relax that tension in the body? Sometimes it relaxes the tension in the mind. 
you know, that physical mind-body connection. So I find it, you just bring it up, it's a two-part process. Yeah. And that is, is not only just the judging voice, but it's the other part that accepts as true the judging voice. Right. I mean, if it didn't accept it believes it. Truth, it. Yeah, that believes it. If it didn't believe it, there wouldn't be an issue. Right. So I think that that's, that's my experience, is that we begin to believe it less and less, identify with it as being who we are less and less. You know, and sometimes for me, you know, therapy has been, you know, really part of it, and kind of starting to see, like, that's not even my voice, you know? That's my friend or my dad or, you know, somebody else that I've internalized in there in my judging. You know, if you really listen to it, oh, that's not even me, you know? That's somebody else, that's not me. I believe that line, you know? And I've been telling it myself over and over. Most important, I think, is to be gentle and kind of see like, oh, when I judge myself, it causes me pain. Can I react to that pain with care? Can I be gentle? Can I be loving towards this mind, you know, that's so confused? There's a question over here. Please. Hi. Um, thank you very much for your share. I got a lot out of it, and, I put it in your, and then I got confused at the end. And um, Good. so, so, um, <laughs> so um, what what is it that, according to Buddhism, what is it that gets reborn, that dies and gets reborn? What is it that has compassion? Right. So it's a, a great question. <laughs> Um, I don't have the answer. The Buddha didn't usually answer that question. You know, he usually kind of said, it's not this, it's not that, it's not this, it's not that. Um, I don't know, honestly, so I can't really answer. What I did hear one teacher say is, what gets reborn are your bad habits. (laughs) (laughs) Well, besides that. And that's about it, you know, that on this karmic level, you know, that we have this tendency towards greed or hatred or aversion or whatever's going on there and that it's that that gets reborn if it's not let go of in this life that you know goes to the next incarnation uh, and then what was the second part of oh and what feels compassion what, what is it that has compassion that has compassion you know we're you've said this many times in your talk and yeah. I hear this again and again and the reason I love this part of it is like the caring you know, what we should have is the caring the loving kindness the compassion um you know what I think? I think that actually that's our true nature. I think that the greed and the hatred and the confusion is this layering over who we really are. And when you start to pull away that confusion, that the compassion, the love, the generosity, the friendliness and the kindness is natural. Is just there. Is just, you know, what this energy essence Spirit, soul, whatever you want to call it, is. That's 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 what I think. I think that that's totally natural. That it's not about cultivating or finding any of that stuff. It's about excavating. You know, digging up all of that bullshit that we layered on top of that true nature of that you know illuminated heart, that wisdom, compassion, nature of our being. All that other stuff is on top of it, and you clear that away, and that's natural. That's there. It just is. Hi. Thank you. Ding. <laughs> <laughs>
Could we have announcements, please? George. Yes, a reminder that uh, these talks are available on the internet at the GBF website, paperlist.org. Yes. Uh, the um, Spirit Rock lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, five night silent retreat is in about two and a half weeks, uh, April 6th to 11th. And it is quite an incredible experience for those who have never sat for a period of time in silence for five nights in five and a half days with people. And um, it's a place, a time, a place to really deepen your practice and maybe get a split-second glimpse of some of the things that Noah talked about. Um, it's uh, taught by uh, a wonderful team of uh, Eric Holvig and Arena Weissman, a lesbian and a gay man, who have done it for many, many years. And uh, so it's coming up, and there are still spaces, and there are, it's a sliding scale. And there are scholarships available for people who can afford it. So if you're interested, uh, spiritrock.org is the website. And um, many of us have done it over the years uh, from this Sunday, and it's really indescribable how to go on a long retreat like that. So I hope people will consider it. Thanks. Okay. Yeah. I'm the host this morning, and there will be some refreshments served. So please enjoy uh, refreshment and tea uh, and socialize with other members. Um, when you have tea, please wash your cups and put that. Uh, that's a rule here. And also, we have a ball out there. Uh, please put $5. Uh, this is minimum. Minimum. If you can put more, by all means, please do so. If you cannot, put in whatever you can. But that definitely support our activities here. It's very, very important. And finally, there might be a group of people who will go out and have lunch together. So that's what we end of the social hour. If you're interested, let me know. I'll try to find who are going. Thank you. Yes. At the Asian Art Museum, there's a Thai artist who is a Buddhist whose name is Budma, who has done a wonderful exhibition of impermanence and Buddhist-inspired graphics and a couple of installation features for the video, which is not a site. It's, it's, it's 23 minutes. And the music that goes with, with the video will also give you a wonderful glimpse of boost inspired. And also just remind that I do have a group here in San Francisco on Wednesday nights, and you're all welcome to come uh, for more information about that or any of my teaching schedule stuff. My website is dharmapunks.com P-U-N-X um, there's a day long that I'm teaching at Spirit Rock on May 9th. It's going to look at Buddhism as anti-establishment rebellion. <laughs> so if you'd like to come and practice for a day, you know, similar to, you know, if you can't make it for the five-day retreat, but you want to take, you know, eight hours and sit and walk and do some of this practice in a little bit more of an intense way, please join us for that. And thank you for having me here. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to stand and hold hands, and if you could do the metta. So I like the circle, um, and if we just reflect for a moment on our own practices and intentions for our lives, maybe 
be reminded that the Buddha said, perhaps he said anyways, that uh, we could search all realms of existence, the whole world over and over, and never find another being more worthy of our love, of our care, of our understanding. No beings more worthy than oneself. May we each remember that, to care and love and respect ourselves. And remember the flip side of that, which is that uh, there's no beings that are less worthy of our love or care or respect either. So may any merit from our practice go out in all directions, touching all beings everywhere, bringing more happiness and peace and understanding to this crazy world, alleviating some of the confusion. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.